You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Well, good morning. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 1 and find verse 46. We're going to read through uh, the song that uh, Ina already read uh, for us this morning. If you are new here or you're visiting here, as I know uh, many probably are because of the season and visiting family for the holidays and kind of starting uh, some of the Christmas travel has already begun. And so we are, uh, if you're new, I'll introduce myself. My name is Jamin Roller. I am one of the lead pastors here at Citizens Church. We were formerly a campus of the Village Church, and last August we became our own church. And, and you've caught us in our third week uh, of Advent. Actually, this is our fourth Sunday in Advent. Is that right? Somebody help me. Okay. Fourth Sunday in Advent. And, and maybe that's really new to you. Maybe you're not sure what Advent is. And so uh, Advent simply means arrival or coming. And so Advent is the time where we uh, tell the story. The church intentionally remembers that Jesus came, like we celebrate in just a few days on Christmas, but also uh, where it reminds ourselves that he is coming again. So that Jesus, uh, he came, he has a arrival in the past and also an arrival in the future. And we are the people of God. And what that means is we live in between those two arrivals. And really what we've been saying here and what the church is doing all around the world in celebrating Advent uh, is declaring that this is the true story of the world and orienting our lives around that true story and entering into that true story that we might, one, be shaped by that, but mainly just because it's true. And so we declare that story over and against the false stories around us and the false narratives around us. And so I won't go back through all of this, but one of those would be consumerism, which says I am what I have, or progressivism that says I am what I achieve, or secularism that says I am all that there is, and so I create my own meaning. And and those are not true. Over and against those uh, false stories, we tell the true story of Advent. So Christian, what that means is because of Jesus, I am loved and I am accepted, and I am one who has uh, received the unconditional love and favor of God in and through Jesus, uh, and he is breaking uh, all that is uh, opposing God, and he is fixing all that's been broken by sin, and one day he will finish that when he comes again. And so we've been telling that story, and what we did two weeks ago is we saw in the life of two characters how that story shapes them and what's true about their life because they're living in the story. And so if you remember, it was two, uh, an older man and an older woman, Simeon and Anna, who lived in the story. And because of their living in the story, there was a holy discontentment in their life. Not just content with the things that I want to change about my circumstances, but my heart is troubled by what troubles the heart of God. Uh, I uh, I am deeply broken about all in the world that is deeply broken. And so there's this holy discontentment. Uh, I I don't have any illusions that everything is awesome and everything is fine. I'm not naive about the pain in the world and I'm, I'm waiting for God to fix that. So it's a holy discontentment and also a patient hope that knows the promises God has made to us, holds on to those promises, uh, and then also, uh, like we saw in Anna's life, has a long obedience in the same direction. While we wait for Jesus to return, uh, we have a patient hope that is committed to the practices that cultivate in our heart this sense of waiting. And so this morning, we will see another life that is being shaped by the story. And if if two Sundays ago, the two characters that we looked at uh, were at the end of their life and were at the latter stages of their life, uh, this This morning, we see in a young woman, one who has her entire life ahead of her, 
So we're looking at the life of Mary, Jesus' mom, and what we see coming out of her, let me just give you uh, where we're going right here at the very beginning. What we see coming out of her life, because she lives in the story, is a humble faith, a humble faith. And as we put some of the pieces of her story together and get some of the context, it's just remarkable the way that she trusts God and the way that she sings about her God. So Luke chapter one, starting verse 46. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Now, verse 50, would you remember verse 50? I'll read it slow. It's the crux of her song. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. If, if you're unfamiliar with the Christmas story, then let me tell you kind of what leads up to this moment here. Mary has found out from an angel that she is pregnant with the Messiah. She goes to see her cousin Elizabeth, who is also pregnant in a miraculous way, and she opens her mouth and she sings this song. And it is a song of praise. It's a song of, of celebration. I don't know when the last time was in your life when, when you maybe you were overcome with just like unbridled celebration, the kind where you're so excited about something, you, you maybe uh, lose a little bit of control over your voice or over your body and you're just ecstatic. And that's what we see here with Mary. That's what the language lends itself towards. I was uh, watching a game with, with my son the other day. It was a football game and someone scored uh, a touchdown. And after they scored, uh, they basically just uh, raised a hand in the air, did like a little fist pump, and then they handed the ball back to the ref. And Asher goes, I like that. He said, I, I, that's how I want to celebrate, Dad. He said, I think it's cool that he didn't freak out. He just kind of put a hand in the air and then gave the ball back to the ref. I was like, okay. And he said, the next time I do something great, <laughs> he said, I'm going to celebrate like that. <laughs> so less than an hour later, we are <laughs> throwing the football in the yard. And he makes a nice catch. It was nice. Uh, and he land, fell, on the ground, fell on the ground, having made this catch. He stands up, he spikes the ball, and then he runs around the yard with his arms out like this, like he had just won the Super Bowl. And I said, hey, bud, what, what about the fist thing? And he goes, dad, I just couldn't help it. What we just read is a song of celebration from Mary, and it is that I just couldn't help it kind of celebration. I think a lot of times when we read the Bible, especially when we get to something that's poetic, the, the vision that we have in our mind is maybe she's behind like just one, you know, standalone mic and the, and the lights are dim and she's just kind of reading through something like she would read some sort of somber poem. And that's not what's happening. That's not what the, the language lends it to. She uses this fanatic kind of language. It's exuberant kind of language. We should envision more that she is moving around the room, singing with all she's got. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She is thrilled and she is overwhelmed in what you might think is, well, sure. She just found out she gets to be Jesus' mom. That's a, that's a really big deal. 
And yes, that's true. But if we get a little more of her story and understand a little more about what this meant for her, the fact that, friends, the fact that she is celebrating and not complaining, the fact that she is singing and not running is shocking. The fact that celebration is her response means that there is this humble faith in God that's coming out of her life. Here's, here's what's true for her when she finds out that she's pregnant with Jesus. She is engaged to Joseph. And what that means is she is legally bound to Joseph and she is in this uh, season of betrothal that is a little more serious than our season of like being engaged. And so marrying Joseph for her in this moment is her plan. Not only is it her plan, but unlike today, it's her only option. So like Carrie, she is 19 when we met and I knew very early on after we met that I was going to marry her. Uh, and I feel like I was maybe for a long time the only one that thought I was going to marry her. She wasn't quite there yet. And believe it or not, my own family was really skeptical of it. Like not because they didn't like Carrie, the opposite. It's like they just couldn't quite figure out why she was with me, which family's great. So um, in fact, I remember this. The very first year we were dating, she came to Thanksgiving with my family. And uh, I overheard a conversation between my mom and my grandma. Now, just for context... My grandma, she's with Jesus now, but she's just the sweetest woman on the planet, which is what made this conversation hurt even worse. I was listening to them, and my grandma asked my mom, she says, so this girl is uh, one of Jamin's friends? And my mom says, no, actually, it's Jamin's girlfriend. And my grandma paused, and she goes, does she know that? <laughs> and I walk in. I heard the whole thing, and I'm like, Grandma, come on. And she looks at me with this sweetest look, and she goes, bless your heart. <laughs> so sweet. Grandma was wrong. Carrie and I actually got engaged two years after that moment, and it was on Thanksgiving. And the reason I say that is because uh, at that time for Carrie, and, and this is true for so many of us in, in our context, Marrying me was her plan, but it wasn't her only option. It just wasn't. Um, Carrie was uh, about six months away from finishing at A&M at that point, and she, uh, okay, well, I'll let it slide. It's Christmas. Uh, she was a great student, super smart. Carrie managed to squeeze a four-year degree into a little over three years, whereas I managed to squeeze a four-year degree into a little over six years. Uh, she's super intelligent, um, and, and she, most importantly, she loved the Lord, pursued the Lord. She had a family that loved and cared for her, and so here's my point. If even in that moment we're engaged, if I had faded out of the picture, she'd have been fine. She would have just been fine. Like, God brought us together, and I understand he's sovereign over all things, but in just a worldly sense, she had other options. Like, if I wasn't around, she would finish her degree. She would keep loving Jesus. She would have had no problem getting a job. She would have married someone far less exciting, I'm sure. But <laughs> the reality is, is I was her plan, but I was not her only option. And that was true for her. That's not true for Mary. It's important. It's so important for us to understand her story and her life when an angel interrupts her day so that we might rightly see what's coming out of her heart in this response in her song. Joseph was her plan and her only option. That's the world that she lives in. 
So the way it worked is that uh, at some point, because Mary's family is super poor, Joseph's family is super poor, no one had a lot of money, and it's the role of Mary's mom and dad to marry her off to a man, to join another family, and that's, that's how she's going to survive. That's how she's going to make it in this world. And so it's not that it was forced, it's not that it wasn't consensual, but it just didn't work for them the way it works for us, right? Joseph comes to Mary's family and kind of presents his intentions, and they're like, yeah, this makes sense. And so Mary is anywhere between, get this, 13 and 17, most likely on the younger end, so let's call it 15. She's 15 years old when she gets engaged. And the arrangement here is that she's going to marry Joseph. They are betrothed together, and that's her plan. It's not just her plan. It's her only option. How will I know that I'm going to go from mom and dad's house, and I'm going to keep eating, and I'm going to keep living, and I'm going to have kids of my own, and I'm going to keep surviving? You're going to marry Joseph. That's the plan and your only option. And so what that would have meant is that would have meant that for an entire year, they were in this betrothal period. They were in the eyes of the state legally married. The only way to break off the engagement was to get divorced. And so they're legally uh, considered to be married. The only difference is they haven't had their ceremony. They haven't consummated their marriage, which just means they haven't had sex yet. And so in that betrothal period, what Joseph's job was is Joseph's job was to go and to build a house for them. Um, in that year. And because he didn't have much money, what that probably meant was he built a room onto his mom and dad's house, which is where they would live, which is every woman's dream. And so that was what he was doing. What Mary was doing is preparing for the ceremony, preparing to get married. What does that look like? Be faithful. What would be the opposite of that? Getting pregnant. Like what can you not do in your betrothal period? Don't get pregnant, especially don't get pregnant with a child That's not Joseph's. So she's this 15-year-old betrothed servant girl waiting to get married, remaining faithful in her waiting to get married, and an angel comes into her room and says, don't be afraid, you found favor with God. He says, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and you'll bear a son. You'll call his name Jesus and he will be great and he'll be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. What do you think, Mary? What's her first question? How? I am a virgin, meaning I am engaged. I have no plans of being unfaithful. It doesn't mean that she's doubting what God is saying to her. It just means that what, what is front of mind for her is how this is going to change and interrupt and jeopardize my life. It's not that she is doubting, but she's saying, God, I am going to be faithful to Joseph. I have no plans of disobeying you. I have no plans of being unfaithful, so how will this happen? And the angel says, you know, it's going to be a miracle. Just like your cousin Elizabeth is pregnant in her old age after years of not being able to conceive, what, what, nothing is impossible with God. And so she's not celebrating yet, but her very first response is just staggering. She says, okay, I'm a servant of the Lord, may it be. So she goes to see her cousin, sees that she's also pregnant, and Mary opens her mouth in that moment and says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And that's her life. That's what's happening in her life when this song bursts from her mouth. And it's incredible. It's incredible that she's celebrating. It's incredible that uh, this is what her heart chooses. Like, it's not, look, it's not as simple for her as, yay, I get to be God's mom. Life changes. 
It invites pain. There is much to lose. And many of her fears that she has or could have actually come true in her life. There's a guy named Scott McKnight. He's a theologian. He wrote a book about Mary. He said, these are the things that she would have been thinking about just because of where she lives and what's going on in her life. This is what she would have been thinking about when she finds out she's pregnant. He lists them. Here are her thoughts. The community is going to taunt and ostracize my son, which happens. Uh, He's going to be called illegitimate, which happens. She knew that Joseph's reputation would be jeopardized. She also knew that Joseph would be legally required to divorce her. She also knew that Joseph could leave her stranded with the Messiah to be without a father. She also knew that worst case scenario, she could be accused of adultery and then excommunicated or worse. That's her world. It's this, he he says this about her, no sane, intelligent, pious young Jewish woman, which Mary was all of and more, could avoid thinking these very things about herself and Joseph when the angel delivers the news. She must have wondered if there was an easier way. And that's her world. He goes on to say this, this is what she signs up for. Mary in faith consented to God's plan. Mary in faith began to carry a cross before Jesus was born, Mary began to suffer for the Messiah before the Messiah suffered. That's what she signs up for. That's when she says, God, may it be. That's what she says yes to, that kind of life. And then we know on this side of her story, all of the other pain that came into her life because of this that she didn't even know about when she sings this song. And yet she celebrates and she is, uh, she is so taken with this idea that God would use her. And it's not that she's perfect, as some have said, right? Like we know that later on in Jesus' ministry, she tries to rebuke him uh, because he is becoming this kind of Messiah that's different than what she thought, which is just interesting because an angel told her that he is the Messiah, that he's God. But even still, what remains is that she's been so shaped by the true story that at this moment in her life, where this moment could have been riddled with fear, she is writing songs of praise. It's a humble faith that comes out of her life. In the song, here's what we see. That humble faith comes out of her life because she believed two things, and you have to have both for your faith to be humble. She believed that she is not God, and she believes that she is seen by God. I am not God, but I am seen by God. Look at verse 46 again. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. She starts singing, and she makes a comparison in her song. She has this comparison. She puts her on one side and God on the other. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit is directed towards God, my Savior. I am of humble estate, he is mighty, and he who is mighty has done great things for me. What you hear in her words is she's making this comparison between her and God, and she doesn't talk about herself the way that she talks about God. She knows that she is not God, and that produces in her life a humility that says, my life is his, he owes me nothing. Right? And so she, because she knows she is not God, she responds to this message that she's pregnant with Jesus. She responds the way she responds because that she trusts that God is going to be what she knows that she's not, which is in control of everything. 
She knows he has her plans. She knows that uh, God can take care of it. It's this humility in her. It's this humble faith in her because, hear me, she lives her life making this righteous comparison that there is a God and I'm not him and we're not the same. He is altogether different than I am, which makes him God and it makes me his servant. It's humility. That's the, that's the essence of what it means to be humble. Here's what's interesting to me. Uh, even though our culture right now is so divided on so many things, even though our culture is so divided ethically in, in, in every other way, humility is still something that's considered a virtue. Or at least, humility is something that's still applauded when we see it. I saw an interview with some athlete this last week, and the athlete answered a question and basically gave all credit to his teammates and said it's all about the team. And the video was applauding the humility of this athlete to kind of point outside of himself to those that are around him. And so it's something that we still kind of applaud, recognize. But it's something that we have such a hard time actually becoming humble. Uh, Harvard did a study a few years ago on the impact of the humble brag. I don't know if you saw this. Basically wanting to know if humble bragging actually works. You know what humble bragging is? Um, It is when... Uh, you brag, but you try to mask your bragging as humility. And according to this study, most humble brags come kind of through the lens of complaint. It's like I act like I'm complaining about something in my life, when in reality, I want you to know something about my life that's really great. So here's some examples just to give, if, you don't, if you're unfamiliar with the humble brag, uh, here's some examples from the study. Why do I always get asked to work on the most important assignments? Humble brag. <laughs> I hate that I look so young, even a 19-year-old hit on me. Humble brag. These are are from the study, by the way. These are not, (laughs) just to be clear, I want to make sure you heard that. These are humble brags other people have used, not named Jamin. Uh, This is my favorite. It was from a tweet from a celebrity. I just stepped in gum. Who spits gum out on a red carpet? It's a humble brag. Here's the conclusion from the study. This is going to shock you. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Like it's so easy to pick up on that it's happening, it's so insincere, that the result is people like you less than if you were to just outright brag. Like if you were to just be straightforward about your own self-promotion, and that's what the study says. It says, if you want to announce something great about you, go with the brag and at least own your self-promotion. But that comes across as prideful, and we can't be seen as prideful. And so here's a direct quote. This is the, this, the person who did the study, this is their solution. Because humble bragging doesn't work, it says this, find someone to wingman your boasting. I kid you not, from Harvard. If someone brags for you, that's best, because then you don't seem like you are bragging. What's, it's ridiculous, right? What's funny to me about all of it, though, is the only, it's only a problem because of the tension between wanting to appear humble, but not actually being humble. And so all of this is trying to come after some sort of solution to get what our pride wants without our pride being exposed or without it being seen as pride. And I think maybe if you've never humble bagged or you do it every day, it doesn't matter. Here's the point. What I think is true is that for many of us, this is as far as we ever get towards humility. Something like this is the closest we ever get to actual humility. We only learn the art of appearing humble and never develop the actual character and virtue and practices that makes us people who actually are humble. 
Okay, well, then what does that look like? Well, Mary shows us, at least at this point in her life, what we get a picture coming out of Mary is that she is humble because she lives from the right comparison, not the comparison that looks at others. Because when, when, when we measure our lives against those around us, that does nothing to cultivate humility. That only feeds pride. If I compare myself to those around me, it's going to be pride that comes out of my life in one of two directions. It's either going to come out as arrogance or insecurity, both of which are children of pride. So if I compare myself to others, it's like, okay, I'm better than them because I'm stronger in this area, or I have more than they have, uh, or I've achieved more than they have achieved. That's arrogance, which is pride. If I compare myself to others and I think that I'm less than they are, I'm less than what they've done, I'm less than what they have, I'm less than what they've accomplished, that's insecurity, which is also pride. It's why C.S. Lewis says that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Because whether in my mind I'm drawing comparison and I feel better than others, or if I'm drawing comparison and I feel worse than others, it still means that what's populating my thought and heart is me, and attention around me, and thoughts around me. It's why true humility comes, and, and many have said this before this moment, it's not original, but humility never comes to any of us by trying to be more humble, but comes when we fix our eyes on something so much greater than us that we are forced to forget about ourselves. You hear that in her words, right? In Mary's words. You hear her obsession with how extraordinary God is. You hear her obsession with how great God is. The adjectives she uses to describe God are adjectives of reverence, holy, mighty. He's done all of these things. Now, here's the reality. She probably, it was maybe a little bit easier for her to think of because she lived in a time religiously in Jewish culture where there were a lot of rules and all of these rules were, were trying to reinforce the greatness and holiness of God. So there are rules about how you can and can't approach the temple because God's so holy. Rules about how you can and can't offer sacrifices because God's so mighty and great. Rules about when to pray and how to pray. And much of these, even though they were turned into legalism by religious leaders, much of those were not intended as legalism, but were given to highlight, highlight how set apart God is. That means the struggle for us living at a different time as followers of God, because in Jesus, we now have access to God in a way that Mary did not when she prays this prayer and sings this song. We have access to God. We don't need a priest. We have Jesus. We don't need a temple. We have Jesus. We don't need sacrifices. Jesus has already made the once and for all sacrifice, so we can talk to him as we go, and we can worship him as we go. But that does not mean, friends, that the expectation of reverence has lifted. Would you hear this? God being more accessible does not make him less sacred. God being more accessible does not make him less sacred. And so what Mary offers is from this place of, of she sees the difference between who she is and who God is, between what God is like and what she is like. And so she's already coming to her life from this place of I'm not him. There's a God and it's not me. And then for us, she sings and she offers a warning in this song. Do you hear the warning? Look at 51 with me. 51 and 52 and 53. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. 
The first half of the song, she's singing, and it's all very personal. And then the latter half of the song gets very cosmic and very global. So she says, this is what God has done for me, and this is how God has interacted with me. And then there's also this other group of people. And so those like me, God interacts with in the same way, which we'll come back to in a minute. But then there's a whole group of people that should be warned. He scatters the proud. He brings down the mighty. He sends the rich away. This is language of confrontation. In fact, I found this so interesting. In the 1980s, the government of Guatemala banned any public reading of this song. They banned the public reading of the song from the 15-year-old servant girl. You know why? Because they considered it to be too politically subversive to be read in public. In other words, the mighty were afraid that people singing this song would mean that they'd be brought down from their thrones because there's a confrontation to it. Look, Mary is warning us, and here's the warning. The truth that I am not God is hard to remember for a certain group of people, and here's who they are. The truth that I am not God is hard to believe and hard to keep in mind when you have a lot. When you have a lot of power, when you have a lot of money, when you have a lot of things. So it would be a mistake to read this or it would be a mistake to hear what I just said and to think that all power and all wealth automatically makes you proud or that all power and all wealth automatically makes you sinful because compared to the rest of the world, that would mean that we are all in big trouble. There is a way to be unrighteously wealthy for sure. There's also a way to be righteously wealthy. There is a way, just like there's a way to be unrighteously poor or righteously poor, right? So, but, but, there is a truth throughout the Bible that those who are physically in need or economically vulnerable often see more quickly their spiritual need than those who are not. From beginning to end, you see that because, here's why, because unlike the wealthy and unlike the powerful, those that are poor can't look to their riches or to their authority and be fooled into thinking, I have all I need, therefore I am God. They don't have that option. So Mary's point is this, you either, wherever you are, with your socioeconomic status, wherever you are, in the range of influence that you have or authority that you have, no one escapes this reality. You either humble yourself before God as one who is not God or you will be humbled by him and all claims to being God will be exposed. That's the point of her song. You see this in the Christmas story. Uh, Luke gives us Mary's song. Matthew makes this point by giving us two groups of rich and wealthy people who respond to Jesus in two different ways. You remember? In Matthew, you have Herod, and in the same scene, you have the wise men. Two sets of people, both powerful, both very wealthy. And what Herod does is Herod is king. He is appointed by Rome. He has palaces and servants and storehouses full of money, and he's so paranoid and so fearful about losing what he has, he hears about Jesus, he feels threatened, and then he has what would amount to about 30 to 40 babies in Bethlehem killed. He felt threatened and tried to act like God and tried to take and tried to, uh, to be the one who controls life, which is God's job. And here's, here's how he's remembered because that's his reaction. He is remembered in history as a volatile, violent, insecure man who, uh, according to one historian after his death, this is a quote, after his death, he was unlamented by his own family. Nobody cried for him because of the way that he lived his life. This is an example of what Mary means when she says God scatters the proud. 
God brings down the mighty, those whose minds have been distorted to look to what they have as evidence that they are all that they need, they will be brought low. And all of his scrambling and all of his scheming and all of his violence to try to protect the world that he built is taken away. He breathes his last. He's unlamented by his family. And the very thing he tried to keep was the very thing that when you look back in history, it's just a tragedy. And yet, you also have these wise men, and they're wealthy. You don't travel the way that these men travel if you don't have a lot of money. They're traveling as a caravan. It's not just three guys, most likely, but they're traveling as this caravan. There's, a, there's a, a couple of them or more, and they have lots of things and lots of authority and lots of wealth, right? And they hear of Jesus. And unlike Herod, they don't feel threatened. They feel invited. And so they travel across the world, and they walk into the living room where Mary and Joseph and Jesus are, 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 are sitting, and men that know what it's like to be served fall on the ground and serve Jesus and worship Jesus. And then they reach into their wealth with the gifts that they've brought. They reach into their wealth, and they give to Jesus. It's as if their claim to what they own falls apart in the presence of the King of Kings. No, no, no. You deserve the gold. You deserve the gifts. You deserve, all that I have is already yours. And my friends, listen, no matter who you are, for all of us, with our plans and our life and our resources and our time, these are the only two options. To hear the claim that there's one who's God and it's not us means that we either close our fists around what I have to protect what I can't keep, or I open my hands to what I have because what I most need I could never lose. And what's the difference between the two? The open hands are connected to a heart that knows what? I'm not God. I'm, not, I'm just his servant. All that I have is time that he's given me. All that I have are things that he's entrusted to me. And that's Mary. She doesn't have a lot, has a lot less than we do. But what she does have and what she knows is that she is not God. So in her humility, God, my life is yours. God, I trust you to take care of all the things that I'm wondering about, all the things that I'm fearful of. Yes, it's going to be hard, harder than she even knows, but her hands are open to God. Her life belongs to God because she is living in a world that was made by and run by and controlled by God, and she's not him. She also says this. It's our last point. We'll be done. In 48, she says, God has looked on the humble estate of his servant. I don't know... Uh, of a, uh, just a more captivating phrase in all of the Bible than this phrase, God has looked upon. There's a little bit more to it than the way that it reads just in the English language. It means to look attentively. It means to look well at. It's a positive kind of gaze. My favorite translation is, God has set his loving eyes on. So, we, so you gotta hold both of them together. Do you see what's true? Do you see what she does? She says, I'm not God. And the God that I am not, like I'm not him, he's different than me, but that God sees me. That God has his attention on me. That God has looked upon me in love. That, friends, is the truth combination that produces humble faith. Those two that stand together. I'm not him. I don't deserve what he deserves. I'm not powerful like he's powerful. I'm not all-knowing. I'm not strong enough. That's who he is. I am not him, but he cares about me. He, can't, he, of all, like, of, uh, who am I 
And he sees me, and he knows me, and he wants to use me. Like, you know what it's like to be in conversation with someone, and you can tell if they are listening by where their eyes go, right? If they're looking around at who's walking in the coffee shop or who's walking around the church, right? If they're checking their phone, where their eyes, when their eyes leave you, the thoughts creep in, okay, they must not have time for this. Or if their eyes leave you, it's like, okay, they're bored with this conversation or they have something else to do or they're thinking of something else. But to have someone's eyes, right? If they're fixed on you, to have their attention, to have their focus, it's as if to have their eyes is to have their heart. And that's what Mary says, the God of the universe, his eyes are on me. He looked on me in love. He set his gaze on me. I have his attention. He sees me. And she draws two conclusions from this. Because of this, all generations will call me blessed. Because of this, I'm going to become famous. But would you see this? It's not a fame that comes from trying to get everyone else's eyes on her. It's a fame that comes to all of those who God sees, all of those who God looks at, all of those who has the loving gaze of the almighty God. And Mary says she has that. And while she, hear me, while she plays a unique role in the story, she does, she's special she has this, this, this different place, like no one is singing this Christmas, Jamin, did you know? That's not a song, right? That's for Mary. That's not for me because of the special role that she plays. She, she does not stay in that place. She says this, and if you remember verse 50, it's the crux of her song. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. I am, Mary says this, I am seen by God. And I am special to God. But what God has done for me is not just for me. What God has done for me does not stop with me. She knows that her life is only a model of what God will do for all those who fear him. Which means this, church, brothers, sisters, visitors, God sees you. He has set his loving eyes on you. It's why he came. And here's the thing that could happen in your heart when I say that. Uh, I don't know, Jamin, I have not done what would attract God's eyes. Like, that's really hard to believe right now. Listen to her art. Listen to the song. Find one place where she sings about something that she has done. It's not there. She doesn't sing about God rewarding her good behavior. She doesn't sing at all about what she has done, but she sings about what God has done for her, what God has done on her behalf. In fact, the whole Christmas story, all of Jesus's family is littered with people who don't deserve what they get from God. Get from God. And then Jesus's life is littered with stories of people who get grace and mercy and love and attention and healing that they don't deserve from God. It's that God's mercy is for those who fear him, not for those who are perfect. His mercy is for those who fear him, not for those who have no regret, but for those who are not him and knowing that they're not him also know that they need him and they respond to that with humble faith. And so look, maybe that means you'd say, look, I'm lower than I've ever been and things are more broken than they've ever been. Yes. And that's why we're telling the story about a God who descends to the lowest places and wants to meet with and love and commune with the most broken people. He sees you. I've been praying the same prayer for a really long time and I don't see any movement. Well, we believe in a God that breaks into history when it's least expected, he sees you. Listen, how do I know? Like I didn't get what Mary got. I never got an angel. Well, I didn't either. 
but we did get a savior. That's what all this is about. Emmanuel, God with us, that he came for me, that he came for you. God sends his son because he saw you. His eyes are on you. He set his loving gaze on your life, not because you deserved it, not because I earned it, but because that's who he is as God. The God that we are not is infinitely more loving than we are as he is also infinitely more powerful than we'll ever be. That's where we'll go on Christmas Eve. Father, we love you. We thank you for who you are and for what you've done. Thank you, God, that you love us and that you see us, that your eyes are on the room even now. Would we be a people that are marked by humble faith in you, God? As simple as it is, and as maybe as unnecessary even as the argument is, God, we confess to you, we're not you. We don't have what you have, we don't know what you know. And so we are a people who uh, exist with you as those created by you, as those made for you. And so we just wanna humble ourselves under that reality. And, and, and that God, being so much different than us, being so separate from us, you still care and you still see and you still interrupt in our present, that God, we can look at the story and at what you've done and, and, and like uh, the Jewish people will sing when they celebrate the Passover, we can look at what you've done in our lives and, and, and time and again, it would have been enough. It would have been enough if you had just created us, but you didn't stop there. You send Jesus and you offer us salvation. It would have been enough if you had just saved us, but you don't stop there, but you remain with us and are faithful with, to us and, and sanctify us. And so we are humbled by you, God. Humbled by you. Humbled by what you do for us. Humbled by who you are to us. And I, I know, I know that the room is not free of pain. I know that the room is not free of disappointment. I know that, that, that if we're looking for evidence that you're not noticing us, we can probably find it if we're looking. I also know that if we're looking for evidence that your eyes have been on us since the day you saved us, we'll find it. So would you make us a people that look for the latter and not the former and trust you? We love you. So we pray. Amen.